This program has been made possible through the support of Cruise, driving cities forward through their autonomous vehicle development. Learn more about how Cruise is transforming the future of transportation through improving our cities by building safe, shared, and all-electronic self-driving cars. Visit them online at getcruise.com. Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, and welcome to today's session. The session is titled The FCC and How You Can Make a Difference. My name is Katie Frederick. I am the facilitator for this session. And I, today on the panel, we have Susie Rosen-Singleton and Michael Scarato from the FCC to speak. I will now turn the presentation over to Susie Rosen-Singleton. Susie, thank you. Thank you, Katie. This is Susie speaking. Thank you for that warm welcome. Um, I do see that there is a hand raised, so I would like to ask everyone who has questions, if you can hold your questions to the end, we want to make sure that we're able to share all the information that we wanted to share with you today. So with that, again, I am Susie Rosen-Singleton. I am the Chief of the Disability Rights Office of the Consumer and Government Affairs Bureau of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. I am joined by my colleague, Michael Scarato, who is the Assistant Chief for in his division for the Media Bureau, also with the FCC. And he will tell you more when he comes on. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Sure. We yeah, are, so, so. yeah, so Susie mentioned I'm Michael Scrato. I'm in the Media Bureau's policy division. I am a, a, an assistant division chief there. Um, just by way of background, I came to the Media Bureau by way of the Enforcement Bureau, and I also uh, worked for two commissioners, former Commissioner Mignon Clyburn and Commissioner Jeffrey Starks. So, uh, I, you know, I've, I've kind of taken a look at some of these issues through a few different lenses uh, at, at, at the FCC. I'm, I'm about a year into my, about a little more than a year into my term at the Media Bureau, and I've, I've been so excited to take on some of these issues around accessibility. Uh, and I'm really happy to join you all today. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for giving us a bit of a background. We do have a lot of information to share. We're going to be taking turns to share that information, and we're looking for your feedback and questions. That's really why we're here today. We live in bewildering times. The pandemic, new technologies, the digital divide, and so much more has made our lives much more complex as individuals with disabilities. Connectivity, through telecommunications and broadband is not just a nice to have, but a necessity in today's world. And today we're going to be discussing how we can work together to ensure that modern communications, emergency communications and video programming are as accessible as possible. We'll provide an overview of the commission's rules, stakeholder initiatives, and then we hope to hear from you what your pressing concerns are. A little bit of background in case uh, some of you are unaware, the Federal Communications Commission or FCC is an independent US government agency overseen by Congress, which regulates interstate and international communications by radio, television, wire, satellite, and cable in all 50 states, the District of Columbia and US territories. 
accessibility is taking on the highest priority ever at the commission as evidenced by its fiscal year 2022 budget request to Congress. That budget request announced the commission's revised strategic goals in the following order. Number one, and there are six total. Number one, pursue a 100% broadband policy. Number two, promote diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. Number three, empower consumers. Fourth, enhance public safety and national security. Five, advance America's global competitiveness. And six, foster operational excellence. I want to elaborate a bit further about the strategic goal to promote diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. And that's number two in the fiscal year 2022 budget. It says the FCC will seek to gain a deeper understanding of how the agency's rules, policies, and programs may promote or inhibit advances in diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. The FCC will pursue focused action and investments to eliminate historical, systemic, and structural barriers that perpetuate disadvantaged or underserved individuals and communities. In so doing, the FCC will work to ensure equitable and inclusive access and facilitate the ability of underserved individuals and communities to leverage and benefit from the wide range of opportunities made possible by digital technologies, media, communication services, and next generation networks. In addition, the FCC recognizes that it is more effective when its workforce reflects the experience, judgment, and input of individuals from many different backgrounds. Advancing equity is core to the agency's management and policymaking processes and will benefit all Americans. Indeed, the time is now for each one of you to be an agent of change in light of the Commission's new strategic goal and language. ACB has been a key stakeholder and a player for the Commission's rulemaking proceedings, advisory committees, and consistent engagement. However, there is more that can be done. The Commission staff regularly speak to people who are blind or visually impaired who are unaware that audio description is available on the secondary audio stream. The Commission staff also regularly hear from others that they did not know that the cable box that they are using right now has accessible features that simply need to be activated. How can the newly blind elderly community be notified of these features? ACB and each of you are critical change agents, and we need each of you to continue to reach out to the rest of the community who may not be joining us for this meeting today. I wanna to share a little bit about the Disability Rights Office before I hand it back over to Michael, who will share about the Media Bureau and their rulemaking proceedings relevant to the topic. With the DRO, the Disability Rights Office, we address three main areas, modern communications, such as access to telecommunication services and equipment, hearing aid compatibility, access to advanced communication services and equipment, access to internet browsers built into mobile phones, telecommunications relay services, and the National Deaf-Blind Equipment Distribution Program. The second area is that of video programming, such as accessible video programming and video programming apparatus, 
including access to televised emergency information, closed captioning on covered television and internet programming, audio description, and accessible user interfaces, text menus, and program guides. And our third area is emergency communications, such as EAS, WIA, 911, and televised emergency information, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. There is much information about the Commission's accessibility work at www.fcc.gov backslash accessibility. At this point, I'm going to turn it over to Michael for an overview of the Media Bureau and its accessibility-related efforts. Michael. Thank you, Susie. And first, just uh, to underscore some of what Susie said about the commission, uh, you know, because it doesn't form a lot of what we do. Uh, you know, so the FCC, we are we are an independent agency. We're very much a creature of Congress. That is to say, our jurisdiction, the bounds of our authority, and our oversight. It's all controlled by Congress through legislation, uh, through the power associated with setting our budget and authorizing the use of our funds. Uh, and through hearings and other forms of direct engagement, uh, you know, as as many, as you all know in this room, I'm sure the commission has been around for quite some time. Originally authorized by the Communications Act of 1934, but our authority our authority has been tailored over the years by other legislation, such as the Telecommunications Act of 1996, of course, the CVAA, and various other bills, large and small. Uh, so uh, we're always getting getting new marching orders and and, and new powers to, to to try to do good and, uh, and make you know communications accessible for for folks. Uh, and just uh, you know, I think we're going to touch on a few different ways that we do our work here. But just by way of background, uh, and apologies if, if this is uh, too rudimentary for some of the folks uh, attending. But uh, primarily, we we operate through rulemakings and through uh, adjudications, uh, and it's particularly true in the media bureau. Rulemakings are generally result in generally applicable rules of the road for similarly situated regulatees and adjudications typically deal in with uh, a set of facts specific to a particular regulatee uh, or they could deal with enforcement of our rules when they are broken or granting waivers or exemptions of our rules in certain circumstances uh, in the media bureau you know we help support this work susie's work and and the accessibility work of the commission primarily through our engagement with um, broadcasters, including television and radio stations, uh, MVPDs like cable companies, uh, and you know that informs a lot of of how we handle our work. But of course, I, I will underscore, being from the media bureau, that uh, you know accessibility goals when it comes, particularly when it comes to video programming, is 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 certainly not a trivial matter and something that we all take very seriously. We know that people who are blind and visually impaired watch just as much video programming as sighted people do and pay significant amounts of money for devices and for subscriptions. Uh, and we also know that you know, television and, and video programming is inextricably intertwined with our society and culture. It educates, it provides critical news and information. It's foundational to fostering the informed electorate uh, that is critical to our democracy. So we're, we're very happy to do this, this work. Uh, and, and we are constantly, uh, you know, trying to make sure that we're doing everything that we can do, that we have the authority to do, uh, to, you know, make, uh, make, make video services more accessible. 
And so with that, Susie, I don't know if you want me to dive right into some of uh, Media Bureau's uh, rulemakings and, and adjudications. Yes, or, please do. Yeah, okay, please do. Sure. Thank you. Great. So um, pursuant to the CBA, which, as we all know, passed uh, uh, just, just passed the 10th anniversary of, it, of its of its enactment. Uh, the Media Bureau, in coordination with DRO and others around the commission, has uh, conducted rulemakings in those early years after passage, addressing many of the major areas of the statute. I'm going to, I'm going to touch on two of them. Uh, one is audio description, and the other is the provision of accessible user interfaces uh, and video programming guides and menus, set-top boxes. Um, so I'm going to take each of those in turn, discuss some uh, of the uh, rulemakings we've done in the past and pending adjudications. Uh, so the commission initially adopted audio description rules back in 2000, about 10 years prior to the passage of the CBAA. But those rules were vacated by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit on the ground that at the time uh, they didn't believe the commission had authority to establish those rules. Uh, so understanding that, that history where the FCC's authority was called into question, yeah, in drafting the CVA, Congress wrote in specific provisions explicitly giving the commission the power to reinstate its earlier audio description rules and expand them in certain narrowly defined instances. So after conducting a rulemaking proceeding, uh, the commission reinstated audio description rules back in 2011, uh, and the rules require large market broadcast affiliates of the top four national networks and multi-channel video programming distribution systems, MVPDs, with more than 50,000 subscribers to provide audio description. The rules also require that to the extent technically possible, all network affiliated broadcasters, commercial or non-commercial, and all MVPDs pass through any audio description provided with programming they carry. In 2015, as directed by statute, the requirement to provide audio description uh, uh, you know, for, for ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC affiliates expanded to the top 60 designated market areas, DMAs. Uh, and in 2017, the commission increased the amount of audio described programming that must be carried on each covered net network to 87.5 hours per calendar quarter and provided some flexibility with respect to the airtime of 37.5 quarterly hours, allowing them to be provided at any time between 6 a.m. and midnight. Uh, as of October of last year, the CVAA allowed us uh, and the authority to begin expanding to additional designated market areas. Uh, and so we can, we can expand to up to 10 designated market areas each year if we can find that the costs of implementing the audio description regulations to program owners, providers, and distributors in those additional market areas are reasonable and uh, accept that we may grant waivers to entities in specific DMAs where we deem appropriate. So in October 2020, acting as soon as we possibly could uh, based on, on the statute, we adopted a report and order expanding our audio description requirements to 10 additional DMAs each year for the next four years, uh, ultimately to cover DMAs 61 to 100. In that report and order, the commission found that the costs of this expansion would be reasonable for program owners, providers, and distributors. And uh, as of January 1st of this year, the top four affiliates in the top 70 market areas are now covered by our audio description requirements. And this includes new markets that weren't previously covered, such as Little Rock, Arkansas, Des Moines, Iowa, and Honolulu, Hawaii. 
These requirements will automatically expand to DMAs 71 to 80 as of January 1st, 2022, where we'll bring in new markets like uh, Omaha and Columbia, South Carolina, Rochester, New York. And we'll continue on January 1st of each year until we've covered the top 100 markets. That October 2020 order, uh, you know, in, in adopting that, the commission also directed us to make a determination in 2023 as to whether the costs associated with further expansion beyond the top 100 markets are reasonable and whether that expansion should continue. So more work to be done, done there. Uh, notably, in that same order, we also modernized the terminology in Part 79 of our rules to use the more commonly and widely understood term audio description, rather than the term video description, which we had previously used and had been used in the CVAA itself. And that was um, based in part uh, on, uh, you know, just an assessment of of usage across the government uh, and, and across stakeholders. And it was also based on a a uh, good recommendation that we received from our Disability Advisory Committee at the Commission. Uh, moving on, on, uh, you know, on March 8th, 2021, uh, we, uh, under, uh, we, we undertook the process, which we do every three years, of updating the list of top five non-broadcast national networks subject to our audio description rules. So these are the cable networks that uh, MVPDs are required to carry with, with audio description. Uh, this new top five list took effect on July 1st, so just a few weeks ago, and it includes the networks TLC, HGTV, Hallmark, History, and TBS. Uh, based on our rules, exemptions are granted to uh, folks who would have otherwise been in the top five, but can show that they provide less than 50 hours per calendar quarter of primetime programming that is not live or near live. And so this is typically sports or news networks. And uh, as, as we expected, um, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, and ESPN were all granted exemptions uh, in this last triennial, uh, in, this, in this current triennial period that, that, that we just started. So to summarize, as it currently stands for audio description, FCC rules require local TV station affiliates of ABC, CBS, Fox, and NBC located in the top 70 TV markets to provide 87.5 hours per calendar quarter, or about seven hours a week, audio described programming, of which 50 hours must be prime time and or children's programming, and 37.5 may be any type of programming between 6 a.m. and midnight. Uh, when it comes to subscription TV systems like cable, satellite, or fiber networks with 50,000 or more subscribers, they also must provide 87.5 hours per calendar quarter of audio described programming on the top five most watched non broadcast Broadcast networks, as I just mentioned, TLC, HGTV, Hallmark, uh, History, and TBS. And 50 hours must be prime time. 37.5 uh, may be shown between 6 a.m. and midnight. Uh, broadcast TV stations and subscription TV systems must also pass through audio description received with their programs unless the secondary audio stream is being used for another purpose related to programming. And beyond our rules, uh, many entities currently voluntarily provide audio description to include local affiliates of the top four networks outside of the top 70 DMAs, many PBS stations, and smaller subscription TV systems. So we always do recommend that folks check with their local stations or cable providers to see what they offer. So that's a, that was a uh, not, not so quick rundown, I guess, of audio description, but I'm going to now move on to uh, 
the proceedings we've undertaken about user interfaces, uh, set-top boxes, video program guides, and menus. So uh, the FCC rules require that devices that play video programming in cable, satellite, and fiber set-top boxes have accessible user interfaces for people who are blind or visually impaired. This generally means that people who are blind or visually impaired have to be able to independently operate and use all or nearly all of the functions of a device, such as the settings, menus, channel selection, start, stop, fast forward, uh, so on. And most of this is accomplished through a speech synthesizer. These rules have separate requirements for cable, satellite, and fiber TV services. And then there are also separate requirements for all other devices that play video programming. So starting with cable, satellite, and fiber TV services, if you subscribe to cable or satellite or a fiber TV service, they must provide an accessible set-top box experience to people who are blind or visually impaired right now. All of them have to do this, nearly all of them, uh, actually. But there are some small rural analog cable companies that that don't have to at the moment, but generally they all have to do this. Uh, and if a blind or visually impaired customer requests an accessible set-top box, the cable company has to provide it at no additional charge. So if you're paying $50 a month and you request an accessible box, your bill should remain $50 a month. Even if they have to go to uh, great lengths to get this box or they have to you know, provide a box that is significantly more expensive than what they would otherwise provide. They have to make this generally easy to get. They have to have an accessible website that lists who you can speak to to find out more information. Uh, that person has to be able to explain how to get one of the devices and how to use the functions, the accessibility functions on the device. There is some flexibility provided to cable companies on how they can achieve these accessible user interfaces. Uh, some companies have set-top boxes that come into the box with these functions. Others use a supplemental tablet app that controls the set-top box. Others might provide some other different type of add-on device. They're allowed to do this, but at the end of the day, it has to be usable. If you're unsure if your cable or satellite company's uh, accessible solution meets our rules, uh, and I'm sure Susie will talk about some of the ways to contact her office more, but you can contact DRO or, or you can file a complaint and, and folks at the commission will take a look at it and engage with the company. Um, so the other set of accessible user interfaces rules covers any device that plays video programming. So TVs, smart TVs, tablets, smartphones, uh, you know, some of our, our devices like Apple TVs, Roku's or Amazon Fire Sticks, computers, and, you know, even uh, smart refrigerators, if they play video programming, uh, they have to have accessible controls. Uh, this also includes rear entertainment systems in uh, in, in cars. Uh, and who knows what else will get a video screen uh, with video programming in, in the future, uh, but it seems to be an ever-expanding list. Accessibility rules apply to these devices and to any pre-installed apps or video players that come with the device. They apply to apps or players that a user is directed to download from a manufacturer or seller, but they're not applicable to any app, and just any app you find on the App Store. Uh, but many of these devices do come with hundreds of apps pre-installed. These devices must be accessible when they are manufactured on or after December of uh, 20th, 2016. And you can now find accessible TVs for multiple manufacturers right in the store. You can find accessible DVD players. Uh, the, most of these are not specialty uh, disability devices. They're the same devices everyone else buys. But you certainly should check with manufacturers to make sure you're buying an accessible device um, because they're not required to make every single device accessible. 
And finally, uh, cable set-top boxes must have a simple and easy-to-use mechanism to turn on and off the secondary audio stream, something like a button or a key or an icon. Uh, because you know, if you can't turn off the secondary, turn on the secondary audio stream quickly, you may not be able to access emergency information, uh, a critical emergency announcement. Uh, and if you can't turn it on and off, you won't be able to listen to audio description. So that's a that's a rundown of a few key areas where the Media Bureau uh, has worked with others on 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 creating and these rules. And so finally, I'm going to turn briefly to another way that the commission is often asked to engage on accessibility issues, which we refer to as adjudications. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, sometimes these can be enforcement actions taken outside of my bureau, typically my old bureau, the enforcement bureau, uh, in response to consumer complaints. In the media bureau, we're most often asked to adjudicate waiver petitions. And so what these look like is from time to time, regular tees who are subject to our rules will send a petition to the commission and ask us for a waiver of specific rules in certain circumstances or subject to certain conditions. Uh, and the CBA itself provided certain specific waivers or exemptions. And, and the commission also has general authority to waive its rules on a case-by-case -case basis of granting such a waiver of service of public interest. Often, particularly in the context of audio description, entities seeking a limited waiver of certain requirements propose alternate requirements that they feel they can satisfy in service to the public interest. Uh, and, and, and these petitions are put out for, for, for public uh, notice. You can comment from folks as to whether or not uh, they should be granted. Uh, and then the commission ultimately rules on them. So just a few examples of uh, waiver petitions we've encountered over the years. Uh, in the audio description context, uh, back in October of 2019, we granted USA Network a limited waiver of our audio description rules, subject to the condition that it aired uh, at least 1,000 hours of audio described programming uh, each quarter in the past triennial term without regard to the number of repeats and described at least 75% uh, of newly produced non-live programming between 6 a.m. and midnight. Uh, and that waiver covered uh, uh, most of, of the last triennial period, triennial period, which which just ended on June 30th, 2021. Uh, and then in this current triennial period that we just entered into on July 1st, um, there's a pending waiver request currently before us from, from TBS uh, asking to cover the period of April 1st, 2021 through June 30th of 2024. Uh, and they've asked for a limited waiver, but uh, as an alternative, has proposed to uh, provide no less than 1,000 hours per quarter of audio description, average at least uh, 1,400 hours of audio described content per quarter, and to audio describe 100% of newly produced original content. And uh, they've extended these commitments not just to TBS, but to other commonly owned networks such as TNT and True TV. That uh, as I mentioned, that request for a limited waiver is currently pending before the Media Bureau, uh, and uh, uh, and so we are we're, we're taking a look at that right now. From time to time, we also have been asked to grant limited waivers of our user interface accessibility rules. This has come up most frequently uh, with certain car companies that manufactured and sold vehicles that did not have accessible rear entertainment systems. Typically, these waivers were confined to certain model, uh, models manufactured in certain model years and did not alter the company's ongoing obligations to ensure that their entertainment systems comply with the commission's rules. 
so for instance, in 2017, uh, we granted a limited waiver to Honda for certain Honda and Acura models uh, manufactured from 2017 to 2020. Uh, in, in 2017, we also granted uh, Fiat Chrysler retroactive waiver of interfaces for certain uh, Dodge Journey vehicles that were manufactured without a, an accessible rear entertainment system. Uh, and then we've dealt with this in the context of, of certain um, subscription TV providers. So, for instance, in 2019, we granted Google Fiber a limited waiver of the commission's rules for requiring accessible user interfaces on covered navigation devices. Uh, so specifically in that instance, there, there was a limited waiver that was granted uh, for, for one year from the date of the original uh, petition to allow them some time to, to bring their set-top box into compliance. Um, we granted that petition and, and uh, it's our understanding that Google Fiber was actually able to achieve full compliance ahead of schedule and, and that waiver is no longer in force. So. Uh, thank you for bearing with me on that very deep dive. Uh, I'm certainly looking forward to hearing from you all during the Q&A. And with that, I will now turn it back over to Susie. Thank you, Michael. That was indeed a deep dive, but very appropriately so. Thank you. Uh, we definitely appreciate the deep dive. Uh, I want to cover a couple other topics. And then, as I said, we are looking forward to your feedback and questions. So, Please know that we are planning to leave time so that we can hear feedback and questions and concerns from you. Uh, at this point, I'm going to talk about two other areas, the CVAA, relevant activities, and the emergency services communications. So let's start with the CVAA. As you know, every two years, the commission submits a report to Congress about the state of accessibility as mandated by the CVAA. More specifically, the report is submitted to the Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation of the U.S. Senate, and the Committee on Energy and Commerce of the U.S. House of Representatives. This report assesses industry compliance over the past two years with sections 255, 716, and 718 of the Communications Act of 1934 as amended. These sections require telecommunications and advanced communication services and equipment and internet browsers built into mobile phones to be accessible to and usable by individuals with disabilities. The report also addresses accessibility barriers to new communications technologies and the effect of the accessibility-related record-keeping and enforcement requirements under Section 717 on the development and deployment of such technologies. Finally, the report provides information about the number and nature of and actions taken to resolve complaints alleging violations of sections 255, 716, and 718 for the two-year period covered by the report, including the length of time that the commission took to resolve such complaints and the number, status, nature, and outcome of any actions for mandamus filed of any of appeals filed pertaining to such complaints. The latest report was submitted to Congress on October 6, 2020, and found the following. One, smartphones continue to innovate and incorporate features that enable improved access to telecommunications and advanced communication services. Two, speech-to-text and text-to-speech technology, voice assistance, and screen readers continue to advance. 
and three, newer devices, such as smart speakers and enhanced compatibility between assistive technologies and advanced communications equipment enable more people with disabilities to communicate. However, the commission found that accessibility gaps continue to exist with respect to a few things. One, the availability of accessible mobile phones with low-end features, functions, and prices for people who are blind. And two, certain apps that provide telecommunications and advanced communication services that are not readable by screen readers. We will continue to monitor and submit reports to Congress. The next one is due October 8th of 2022, which is the anniversary of the CVAA. And your comments and ACB's comments contributed so much to those reports and will continue to do so. On April 7th of this year, the commission released a public notice to invite public comment on whether any updates were needed to the rules implementing the CVAA. Most of these rules have now been in effect for many years. And many of them have not been revisited recently some even since initial adoption. Given the changes from 2010 to now in technology and industry practices, as well as taking into account consumer experiences, the commission sought comment on whether there is a need to update these rules. The deadline for submitting comments ended and extensive comments from ACB and ACB members and other blind advocates were received. Submitting comments like this is an excellent way to influence change. Now I'm going to move to emergency communications, notifications, and and services, which is imperative given the pandemic. Many of us are still sheltering in place, working from home. We have new variants coming out. It's very important that we have effective emergency communication services and notification. On February of this year, the FCC established the Emergency Broadband Benefit Program, which is a $3.2 billion federal initiative to help lower the cost of high-speed internet for eligible households during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. This program offers two benefits. One is a discount of up to $50 per month towards broadband services or If you're on tribal lands, it's up to $75 per month of a discount. And secondly, a one-time discount of up to $100 for a laptop or desktop computer or a tablet purchased through a participating provider if the household contributes between $10 and $50 towards the purchase price. And that is to help people be connected this time. And to purchase these devices through the Emergency Broadband Benefit Program, they are expected to be accessible to and usable by people with disabilities. So starting May 12th, eligible households were able to apply for this benefit. And the URL for that is www.fcc.gov backslash broadband benefit. And that's one word, broadband benefit. That application period is open until those funds are exhausted. Applications can be accepted three different ways. You can contact your preferred participating broadband provider. You can go online to learn about their process. You can go to getemergencybroadband.org and apply online. 
Or if you prefer, you can call the phone number 833-511-0311 and receive a mail-in application. And again, you can go to www.fcc.gov backslash broadband benefit, one word, to get all of that information. There's also videos in ASL about that program on that website. It's also available in multiple languages as well. The second emergency service that we've provided is known as the Emergency Connectivity Fund Program. It was taken on May 11th of 2021. $7.17 billion was released in this report and order to establish this program, the Emergency Connectivity Fund Program, which is used to reimburse schools and libraries for the purchase during the COVID-19 pandemic of laptop and tablet computers, Wi-Fi hotspots, and other eligible equipment, as well as broadband connections for students, school staff, and library patrons who would otherwise lack access to connected devices and broadband services during this unprecedented time. Now, specifically for individuals with disabilities, the report and order states three things. First, that connected devices are expected to be accessible to and usable by individuals with disabilities. Secondly, should people with disabilities require certain devices to connect to the internet, those schools and libraries are expected to request such devices to accommodate disabilities if needed. And three, applicants may, meaning the schools or the libraries, may request a waiver of the reasonable maximum support amount of $400 for laptops and tablets if needed to support individuals with disabilities. So you can see those are two big initiatives that the FCC has pushed forward to make sure that we are doing what we can to minimize the digital divide. Now, the commission also has rules around accessible emergency notifications. First, as it pertains to television, We have a rule that requires video programming distributors, that includes broadcasters, cable operators, satellite television services, fiber, and others, to make televised emergency information accessible to people with disabilities. Now, specifically for individuals who are blind or visually impaired, we require that any emergency information provided in the video portion of a regularly scheduled newscast or a newscast that interrupts regular programming must be made accessible by orally describing the emergency information in the main audio portion of the programming. When emergency information is conveyed visually during programming other than newscasts, for example, through a crawl or scrolling text during regular programming, an oral tone on the main audio stream must accompany that visual information. Additionally, such visual emergency information must be conveyed orally in full at least twice through the secondary audio stream, again preceded by an oral tone on that stream. That oral emergency information will supersede all other programming on the secondary audio stream, including audio description, foreign language translation, or duplication of the main audio stream. There is a current waiver of the requirement to orally describe visual but non-textual emergency information, such as maps or other graphic displays, until May 23rd of 2023. This waiver was granted 
in May of 2018 to American Council of the Blind, ACB, AFB, American Foundation for the Blind, and the National Association of Broadcasters. Finally, uh, in terms of uh, emergency televised information, as it pertains to second screen devices, such as tablets, smartphones, laptops, or other similar devices that you may use in your homes to access video programming via a multi-channel video programming distributor network, or MVPDs. <clears throat> MVPDs must ensure that any application or plugin that they provide to consumers to access linear programming on those second screen devices over their networks as part of their services is capable of passing through the oral representation of emergency information, including that oral tone on a secondary audio stream. Comment was sought on the following three issues in 2015. They have not been resolved, but I want to share with you where they are in these three areas. So first, should we adopt rules regarding how covered entities should prioritize emergency information conveyed orally on the secondary audio stream when more than one source of visual emergency information is presented concurrently? Secondly, should we reconsider the commission's requirement for school closings or changes in school bus schedules resulting from emergency situations to be conveyed orally on the secondary audio stream, considering the length of such information and the limits of the secondary audio stream? And thirdly, should we require MVPDs to ensure that the navigation devices they provide to subscribers include a simple and easy to use activation mechanism for accessing audible emergency information on the secondary audio stream. And should we all further require that they provide a simple and easy to use mechanism to activate the secondary audio stream for emergency information when they permit subscribers to view linear programming on mobile or other devices as part of their MDPD services. So those are outstanding issues that we are still reviewing at this time. As some of you know, we and we are looking forward to your involvement on August 11th of this year for a nationwide test of the EAS, which is the Emergency Alert System. EAS is different from other emergency alerts that you may have experienced. Most of the emergency alerts that you have experienced are for local emergencies, but there is a national emergency alert system that has actually never been used. We test it annually, and one such test is coming up on August 11th. And we have different accessibility requirements for EAS. The audio portion of an EAS message must be played in full at least once to ensure that it is accessible for viewers who are blind or have low vision. It's really important that members of the disability community participate and let us know if you have any concerns about the accessibility of this year's test. As I said, it's August 11th of this year at 2.20 p.m. Eastern time. We do have a backup date of August 25th of this year, 21. The community is strongly encouraged to provide feedback for, to us, including uh, any accessibility concerns, go to our homepage and you'll see a banner on the top 
and you can just click on that link. It will take you directly to, uh, to our page, the FCC.gov page. You should be able to see that banner clearly, but if you want a, um, a specific URL, it's FCC.gov backslash accessibility complaints form. And you can also email us at dro at fcc.gov. Thank you in advance for your feedback. It's really important that we investigate any and all alleged concerns or violations. Last, in terms of substantive content that I want to share with you, is the National Deafblind Equipment Distribution Program, which has been instrumental to provide connectivity for low-income deafblind individuals. We provide up to $10 million annually from the Interstate Telecommunications Relay Service Fund to support 56 state and territorial programs that distribute equipment to eligible, low-income individuals who are deafblind. The NDBEDP, also known as I Can Connect, provides equipment needed to make telecommunications, advanced communications, and the internet accessible to low-income deafblind individuals. In addition to equipment, assessments of specific accessibility needs, equipment installation, training, and other technical support are also available. For more information, please visit iCanConnect.org. Well, that wraps up an overview of our regulated programs and services under the purview of the Commission. Now I'd like to welcome Michael to start the discussion on stakeholder initiatives. Michael. Thank you, Susie. Um, so how can you all be a change agent at the commission? Well, there's a lot of ways and I'm gonna to touch on one of them and turn it back over to Susie after that. But um, I, I just love how Susie put it. Uh, submitting comments is an excellent way to influence change. That is, that is absolutely true and I'm gonna, Give you a little bit of background on how to do that. So, uh, you know, we at the commission we rely on the expertise and experiences of a wide variety of stakeholders to include consumers when it comes to informing the rules that we make and the actions that we take when we launch a proceeding uh, or begin considering something like a, a waiver petition. Uh, we put out some type of notice to the public, and that's posted on the FCC's website, www.fcc.gov. Often it is off also published in the Federal Register. Uh, and so this could include a variety of documents, public notice, a notice of inquiry, where we're seeking more information on an issue before we try to formulate rules, a notice of proposed rulemaking, where we're actually proposing specific new rules or changes to existing rules. Uh, each of these types of documents will include instructions for members of the public interested in filing comments and we'll also include a docket number to help keep all of our filings organized and make sure that everything on a particular proceeding ends up in the same place. These filing instructions and the docket numbers will direct folks to the Commission's Electronic Comment Filing System, or ECFS. Uh, the ECFS portal can be found at www.fcc.gov ECFS. At that website, anybody can search for the filings in a given proceeding to see what others are saying or submit their own filing, either using a standard form for uploading a more formal filing uh, or through an express filing geared more towards individual consumers. 
Uh, we have dedicated docket numbers that correspond to different issues that have been open uh, since the inception of some of these rules and, and, and remain monitored. For instance, uh, audio description items. Those are always filed in docket number 11-43. Accessible set-top box and user interface filings are found in docket number 12-108. Uh, accessible emergency information filings, like, you know, Susie just talked about some of those rules. Those are in docket number 12-107. Uh, and as Susie just touched on, we just created a new docket uh, between the Media Bureau, the Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau, and the Wireless Telecommunications Bureau. And this docket is collecting filings responsive to the CVAA public notice, so the accessibility public notice that, that Susie talked about, where we're you know, trying to figure out the state of our rules and, and whether there's more we can do. Uh, the docket number for that particular public notice is 21-140. As I mentioned, these dockets are regularly monitored uh, and they're often the landing spot for any incoming waiver requests from industry stakeholders. And, you know, I'll just say it again, I'll highlight it. We rely on public input to do our work. And I would highly encourage everyone here to get involved with our proceedings and share your expertise. Uh, so now I'll turn it back over to Susie so uh, she can touch on some other ways that folks can get involved. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Filing comments is critical. I agree. We have actually many stakeholder initiatives. Uh, I want to make sure we have time for questions. So I'm not going to go through all of them, but I want to just share a couple. I want to highlight some for your uh, information. So the first is, as you heard already from Michael earlier in the presentation, the Disability Advisory Committee, or the DAC, ACB has played a key role. Uh, you keep us informed on current issues, best practices, and so forth. ACB actually has served on the DAC since its inception in 2014 and has served on every two-year term and has been instrumental in making sure that we get the best possible recommendations that we are including in our rulemaking proceedings. And the terminology has changed, like for example, from audio, video to audio description as an example. So thank you to ACB for its leadership as well as many other members who serve on that working group. Another recommendation for the group, well, first I should say that there are 37 stakeholders from industry as well as consumer groups who come together on this advisory committee and talk through um, hopefully getting to consensus to make recommendations on issues that are of necessity that we need to address as the FCC. They may include, for example, audio description and quality best practices in the field of, I should say, and guides for audio dis description. Programming, menus, et cetera, can be difficult to find so those are the kinds of discussions that recommendations have been, been promulgated around. They've made recommendations about graphical um, user interfaces. And we look forward to the continuing feedback from this year's DAC into what can be involved. And ACB, as I said, as an organization, um, should hear from the members and bring that to our attention through this advisory committee. Another initiative that I want to spotlight is that we have a simple way for you to keep informed about all of the work that we're doing at the commission vis-a-vis -vis accessibility. It's a listserv that we use to release announcements about any of our rulemaking proceedings or events or forums. 
And you can subscribe very simply by sending an email to accessinfo at fcc.gov. And then we'll just add you to the list and make sh- making sure that you're kept apprised of all of our events and activities. Another initiative that I want to highlight is our complaint system. We do rely on your feedback about any concerns vis-a-vis accessibility that you are experiencing. It was mentioned earlier that we do have specific forms for accessibility complaints, and that's at www.fcc.gov backslash accessibility complaints. And that word is pluralized complaints, plural. So we encourage you to go to the homepage and see all of the different issues that we have purview on that you can learn more about. And on that page, we'll also describe the process for requests for dispute assistance. That's actually a new process um, established by the CDAA. And it helps we sort of mediate between industry and consumers when there are concerns or issues. And they have resulted in kind of systemic changes that have been really impressive. Of course, I'm not at liberty to discuss specifics. Uh, It is a confidential process, but it allows for very innovative solutions to come on board from the industry players. And finally, I want to spotlight our materials and resources that are available on our website. We have consumer guides that cover a variety of areas, compliance, guidance, And you can go to uh, our homepage again for the Disability Rights Office, which is www.fcc.gov backslash accessibility. And with that, I think at this point, uh, I would welcome Michael to come back to the stage and we eagerly await your questions, uh, feedback, concerns. The floor is yours. I think maybe Katie will be moderating those questions. Hi, Katie. Welcome back. Actually, yes, thank you. Um, we do have a Zoom host here. So, um, Desi, I think we are ready to take questions now. If you could assist with that, please. Absolutely. The first hand that we have raised is Claire Stanley. And Claire, you should be able to talk. Um, hi, thanks so much. Um, I just had a question slash more of a comment concerning audio description and future um, regulations that could make be made or even guidance. Um, I uh, love using audio description, and I've noticed lately, though, that many um, resources or television programs that use audio description are used on some programs that are more dialogue-based, um, so audio description isn't as needed, which is still great. But on the flip side of that, on the exact same channels or broadcast networks, they'll have TV show programs that are extremely um, drama-based, have not a lot of talking and things like that. So if I could wave my magic wand on that exact same broadcast network, I'd want them to flip where they're using the audio description and really think a little deeper about what audio description would be best for which program when they're using up their hours they're required to. So I just wondered if that was ever um, something regulations could be made about or even guidance through the DAC could be discovered or discussed, excuse me. So just wondering if there ever talk with these major broadcast networks to say, well, you're filling up your hours, use it wisely with which programs you're thinking about. Thank you. Hey, this is Mike. Um, Thank you so much for that comment and for pointing that out. Uh, That's interesting to know. I could see how that would be frustrating. Um, You know, as I mentioned uh, in my extremely deep dive, uh, (laughs) we, um, you know, we've, we've, 
uh, we're directed by the statute in terms of the regulations we put out uh, on on audio description, and 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 we've 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 tried to be uh, proactive in doing everything that 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 we're able to do. Uh, you know, uh, folks who are covered by our rules are given a lot of leeway in terms of what content they audio describe. So outside of the requirements of the uh, certain amount of hours and 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 when some of those hours have to uh, you know have, have to fall in their schedule, um, you know we 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 don't really uh, uh, go much much further than that. Um, but. You know, I mean, that's certainly something that, you know, it's interesting to hear. I think it's certainly something uh, that, you know, maybe interacting with the, the, uh, the, the, the video provider and, 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 and raising, raising that feedback could be a way to kind of elevate that issue and, and encourage them to, to, to do a bit more, uh, you know, beyond the point where our rules end. Um, but, um, but, but thank you for that feedback and definitely something uh, I've noted down here and interested to learn about. All right. Next, we have Terry Pacheco. You should be able to talk. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm not sure which one of you wants to take this, but I've gotten several questions in the last couple of days about the recent public notice of this new Equity and Diversity Council that the FCC is looking for nominations on. And I'm wondering... I guess the primary question that people are asking is, what's the difference between that and the Consumer Advisory Council and the Disability Advisory Council? Thanks. Hi, this, hi Terry. This is Susie speaking. Um, and for some of you, you may not know that Terry is our colleague at the FCC. She does alternative formats and uh, uh, is a key player for the agency in accessibility. So thank you for the question. Um, we are very excited about this new advisory committee. Historically, it, there has it's been in action, but it didn't include accessibility as part of their focus. But now because of the new strategic goal that I shared with you earlier, their mandate has been expanded. And they will be focused on ensuring that, that owners of stations are diverse and really focused on diversity in the types of services that they're providing under their purview of our agency. It's a little bit different from the Consumer Advisory Council that you mentioned in that they're more focused on the experience and engage with uh, products and so forth. So for example, like robocalls, that sort of uh, arena is really under their purview of the, the CAC. And then speaking of the Disability Advisory Committee, the DAC, um, we make sure that uh, they will work closely with the new advisory committee as well to ensure that, that we aren't doing overlapping or redundant work. Um, they may actually share some work groups. It's quite exciting. The nomination period has been announced and um, it's been, we're promoting that opportunity. I hope that helps answer the question. Okay, and next we have Pam. Thank you very much. Um, I've heard you talk mainly about, uh, with reference to, to TV and audio description, that sort of thing. I've heard you talk about cable set-top boxes and the varying sizes of the market shares that, that are covered. But I'm also curious to know 
two things. Number one, on a local level, is there a limit as to, for instance, for those of us who have cut the cord, we're not, I'm not tied to a cable company. And do, do, do the, the, the local broadcasters have to adhere to the same rules at, uh, per, for over-the-air broadcasting? And um, also, what, what, what is my uh, means of complaining if, if, in fact, it's not tied to a cable company? Because that's that's what that's what it seems that your that your primary focus is are uh, cable boxes and satellites. Yeah. So this is this is Mike. Um, so thank you very much for for the questions. Uh, uh, so yeah. So as, as I mentioned, um, uh, you know we uh, we in these instances are, are bound by where the statute has, has sent us and and and, and our hook for authority here does tend to be over the traditionally regulated companies like the broadcasters or um, the cable providers uh, and, and, you know, what they're showing through over the air or, you know, over their, their, their cable networks. Um, We, uh, you know, as, as part of this um, CBAA PN that we've mentioned a few times uh, you know, we've certainly seen comments in terms of, you know, how, how we might want to extend that beyond that bounds. And, uh, you know, we're interested in, in looking uh, to see if there, there are ways to, uh, to do that. But as I mentioned, uh, you know, in some instances, absent uh, an act of Congress, uh, we, you know, we can, we kind of go where uh, this statute has taken us. And, and in these instances, it has been the broadcasters and, and the cable companies, uh, and, and, you know, it's a little bit trickier to reach uh, things going on, on online. So, uh, you know, that is that is where we are, uh, although I certainly hear you with respect to, um, you know, folks who have cut the cord uh, and, and the desire to have uh, audio description in that context as well. Uh, in, in terms of ways to com- complain, I mean, you know, we I I'd encourage you to take advantage of a number of the ways that Susie has mentioned, whether it's emailing DRO at their email address or, or filing a complaint, even if you're not quite sure if our rules cover it, um, you know, we'll look at it. And, 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 and we've got folks that will bump it to the appropriate people and, 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 and it kind of helps us get, give us a sense of what's going on. And uh, in a lot of instances, even if, uh, you know, we don't take action in there, there could be a dialogue facilitated between, you know, you as a user and, and the company and the provider that, that that could end up being useful. And I turn to Susie if she has anything else to add here. Yes, thank you. I, I do want to add that sometimes this is Susie speaking. Um, there are different avenues to requiring that uh, you have access. It's not necessarily under the commission's rules, perhaps, but you could be talking about other types of rules. So, for example, it's my understanding that in California, there's a very strong state. Uh, legislation that allows for uh, captioning of streaming media. So I'm not sure about audio description per se, but there are innovative ways to explore different ways of making sure that um, people get more access for streaming media. But I do want to say that my understanding um, from the big streaming media players 
that they are trying to get um, many programs audio described on their schedule on their platforms. So it's, you know, sometimes people can go beyond the rules and negotiation can help having contact with them and having consumers reach out and express concerns is certainly a hook into it. All right. And we have Linda H. Okay. Now, hi. Um, Mike, I have a kind of two-part question. Um, is there a way to find out um, if, if a network, a broadcast network is in compliance and, or, and the second part is if they have a waiver? And the network I'm particularly interested in, uh, uh, and I'm not, tr- do not mean to call them out, but, but I am particularly interested in the public broadcasting PBS system. Um, I have never found a program listed as having audio description, and, and I do get it through my cable company, my provider. Ooh, silence. Okay, sorry. I do hear you. <laughs> yeah, no, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, as I mentioned in the kind of rundown, um, the best instance, the best thing to do in that instance is to contact your local your local station uh, and, and, and ask them and, and see what, uh, what what's going on with that. You know, uh, as I mentioned, the kind of the contours of, of our rules and, and, and who they apply to when it, when it comes to audio descriptions, uh, you know, uh, you know, not the PBS station may not fall under, uh, you know, being that, those requirements. We, we, we do understand in, in, in certain instances that there are PBS stations that, that do try to provide audio description. Um, you know, but I think that in that instance, the, the best, path forward is is contacting them and and you know asking them and then if if you know if, if you think that there is some issue there then getting in touch with us this i would strong this is Susie. i would strongly recommend that you uh file with us so that we can investigate it further because you're right i know that pbs um have they have lots of children's programming for example and I do believe that many of them are audio described. So we'd like to understand the system better and your particular situation. So you can email us at dro at fcc.gov or you can go through uh, the homepage and fill out um, a, file, a complaint. And we are very much looking forward to hearing from you and working this issue further. All right. Uh, Cassie, Kathy, sorry, Kathy Casey, you have permission to talk. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you for uh, joining us at our convention this year. I am going to totally throw you off for a loop. Um, this has to do with communications, but I, you may be able to refer me <clears throat> to the office that deals with emergency communications and 911 comm centers. If a visually impaired employee or a potential employee wants to come in, um, would FCC have jurisdiction or oversight in their equipment accessibility? This is Susie speaking. If you're, talking, far- about, if you're talking about employee access, so the idea of employment, that it, you're right, that really goes to the EEOC. We'd be happy to connect you with the correct information. If you want to contact us at dro at fcc.gov, we can we can direct you in the right way. Uh, if we're talking about 
in equipment at the workplace for employees with disabilities, that um, that's not under the FCC's jurisdiction. All right. And next we I have, think, oh, sorry. I don't, yeah, this is Katie. I don't know if we'll be able to get that last question. We have just about a minute, a uh, minute or two left. Um, and, I, and I want to make sure that we, that we give our, our closing CEU code as well. Um, so let's um, want to thank Michael and Susie for presenting today. And thanks to the Zoom host and broadcaster for keeping us on ACB radio. We have reached the end of our time together. So thank Bye. you, everyone. Thank you so much.